0: I didn't. I didn't prep him ahead of time, but I'm going to ask Hank a couple of questions here. All right, so kind of put you on the spot. You good? Okay. We we have we have a few obsessions in, in our home. The word obsession, of course, means things that you're just completely fixated on, that you just can't get enough of. What are some of the things that are obsessions you would say for for us in our in our home? Some of the things that we that maybe you or your brother or your sisters are just fixated on and can't get enough of. PlayStation Four, okay, yeah, that's that's part of it. What else? Baseball, Baseball would be one thing. Yep. Got any others? Uh, Gymnastics for for your younger sister. Yep. Uh, okay. Lucy likes to decorate a room. Yeah, yeah, you good. ought to see it. It's great. It's really good. It really is. Duke likes, Duke likes the Avengers, Captain America, Iron Man, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Star Wars. We've seen Star Wars. Yeah. You me to tell you? I'm going to give you all the spoilers. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, we've got, we have some obsessions, and and, and you all well know, of course, from hearing me, if you've been here any length of time, and just in case you haven't, uh, you know, there are a few things that I'm obsessed with, you know, I mean, one of those, as Hank mentioned, I love baseball, I just love it, it's what I grew up doing, and and still enjoy it, and, and get to talk about it occasionally and stuff, and... You know, I'm sure if I were to poll the audience, we'd have a variety of things. You know, really, if you were honest, I'm obsessed with this. I mean, I just can't get enough of whatever this is, whether it's a hobby that you enjoy or some, you know, a show that, you know, you binge watch on Netflix or whatever it is. You just can't get enough of whatever that particular thing is. It's what you love and it's what you enjoy and it's what you just can't take your eyes off of. All of us have those things and and this morning I'm not going to tell you that inherently any of those are wrong. So don't 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 get nervous. What I want to find some common ground on though is that I do believe that all of us have obsessions. They may be different for each of us, but I think there's one obsession that we all struggle with. Every one of us. There's one thing that based upon the fact that we're human just because of that fact, there's one obsession that is a temptation for every single one of us here. You may not be tempted to obsess about baseball or Star Wars or gymnastics or any of the things that my family gets riled up about, but you and I can find some common ground today. And I know it's true of you because I know it's true of me that our temptation is to be obsessed with ourselves we, we are obsessed with me, me, me. And that just comes with being human. You don't have to feel a guilt trip this morning. You don't have to feel ashamed this morning. That's not my point. But I do want to draw attention to the fact that all of us, every single one of us, is obsessed at one time or another with ourselves. You think about it. We, we may not want to admit it, But we either think too lowly of ourselves, which means we're obsessed with ourselves, or we think too highly of ourselves, which means we're obsessed with ourselves. We're always thinking about us, about me, about what I want, what I need. And if you look in our short history of the last, say, 60 years or so, in our society, just even just here in America, so much of it has been geared toward making sure And and really just trying to ensure that all of us just feel better about ourselves. You look at what's happened since World War II. And and if you're a part of that generation that, that went off to war and so on, obviously we salute you and we thank you. And at the same time, we have to be honest and say since about that time, our society has shifted. We didn't want that to happen again, and we wanted to make sure that we're all okay and you're okay and I'm okay and everybody's okay. And so that's all we've been focused on. And we've been obsessed with making sure that everybody just feels better about ourselves. And if you think about it, the greatest sin against humanity right now in our world today is to to maybe say to somebody, you know what, you're not okay the way you are. Something in you might need to change. That is the greatest sin you can commit against anybody, just so you know. It's, it's, It's the greatest one, at least as far as society says it is. We build up our kids to think that they're invincible, to think that they're the most special person that's ever lived on the face of the earth, that they can do anything, that they should you know, just follow their dreams, follow their hearts, make a name for themselves, do it their way, just do whatever you want to do. We're obsessed with ourselves and unfortunately passing that along to another generation. And so much of our society is centered around preventing even the smallest chance that a person will feel bad about something in their lives. We're obsessed with ourselves. And it's just because we're human. It just so happens to be the way that it manifests itself here in America. And of course, with the invention and proliferation of social media, now anybody can be a star. And I see it all the time. Facebook, Twitter, wherever. You can be a star, at least among your friends. This morning, I hope to put you face to face, as I've done with myself this week, put you face-to-face with a choice about your obsession. There's a guy in the Bible named John. He was, came to us known as John the Baptist, who had to make this similar choice about his own obsession. He could have chosen himself because John was a big deal. In his own time, John was a really big deal. He could have chosen to be obsessed with himself, but instead he chose the path of humility. He chose the way of the Master, Jesus. Our series that we're in, if you're just joining us just to catch you up to speed, is called The Way of the Master, and we're just doing a study of the life of Christ. He, of course, is the master of life, the master of our lives, and so we're just studying how did he live? What were the things about his way that ought to be the things about our way? And so that's what we're looking at over several weeks. And we've just finished up sort of the Christmas season version of that. And we're moving forward now today to getting to where Jesus begins His public ministry. So He's, he's past the, the baby Jesus stage, and now He's adult Jesus, and beginning to, to put Himself out there, and beginning to preach and to minister and so on. My one goal as a pastor here at Elm Grove would be, as I've said before, and the title of this series points to it, is that each and every one of us would simply look to Him and learn from Him and walk in the way of the Master. That's all that I want. Today, we're going to look at a prerequisite. What has to be there if we're going to walk in the way of the Master? And and the title of the sermon is simply humility, and that's what it is. We need to turn with me to the book of John, John chapter 1. While you're getting there, i give you a little bit of information about this particular book, John the Baptist didn't write it. In fact, John the Baptist didn't write any of the Scripture, just so you know. There were two different Johns. One John was the Apostle John, Peter, James, and John. Maybe you've heard of those guys. Peter, James, and John. James and John were brothers. John was one of the 12 disciples, and then one of the three that was closest to Jesus. He's the guy who wrote the Gospel of John. He also wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and he wrote Revelation. And so he writes in John chapter 1 and moves through his Gospel a little bit. And he tells us at the end of it in chapter 21 that he wrote these things so that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and by believing we would have life in his name. So his gospel is all about helping us believe in Jesus and understand who he was. He he opens the gospel by talking about who Jesus was and so on. And then he gives us some information about this guy named John the Baptist. Look with me in chapter 1 of John. Look at verse 6. There was a man named John who was sent from God. He came as a witness to testify about the light, that's talking about Jesus, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So you get an idea here of who John the Baptist was. John was sent by God. He had a special mission from God. In fact, he may be considered, if you if you, if you like to think of it in these terms, sort of as the last Old Testament prophet. John was the last guy before Jesus got on the scene that talked about Jesus' coming. He's he's almost here, and John is announcing his coming. He was sent by God, came as a witness. He's to testify. He's to tell the truth about the light, how Jesus is described, the light of the world. And John, the apostle John is very careful to make sure that we understand. John the Baptist was not the light. He's not the Messiah. He's not the the main message, the the big deal. But he's just simply telling about who... Is coming, And then look at verse 19. You fast forward just a little bit through what John the Apostle here is saying, and he gets to more about John the Baptist. This is John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? Obviously, John is attracting some attention here. He's doing some things, and they want to know, okay, what, what's your deal? Who, who are you and what are you doing? So this is essentially sort of an official delegation from Judaism. We're going to come out we're going to find out what's this guy about. Who are you? Then verse 20. He did not refuse to answer. Now that's important just so you know. Uh, John John was not trying to hide his identity. He was not trying to claim to be, as we'll see, somebody he wasn't. He wasn't trying to say, well, who do you think that I am? Do you think maybe I'm this or that and whatever? He's going to be very clear about it. He did not refuse to answer, but he declared, I am not the Messiah. What then, they asked him, are you Elijah? Elijah. I am not. Now, just so you know, the the idea here of Elijah was, uh, if you know the story in in the book of Kings, both books of Kings, uh, Elijah didn't die. He was just taken up in a whirlwind into heaven. And so many of the people in in Judaism believe that since he didn't die, maybe he's still mysteriously kind of out there somewhere, and he's going to come back at the end times. And so Elijah might just show up out of nowhere. And so they're wondering, hey, are you, Elijah, kind of come back from wherever you went? And he says, no, I'm not. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. Back over in Deuteronomy chapter 18, there had been predicted that it would be a prophet like Moses who would come back at the end times. And so maybe they're saying, hey, is that you? And so over and over, what does he say? Who are you? I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. Verse 22, who are you then, they asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can, we tell, what can you tell us about yourself? And he said in verse 23, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees, so they asked him, Why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? I baptize with water, John answered. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. All this happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, here is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who has surpassed me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I watched the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and rested on him. And he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, The one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that he is the Son of God. And again the next day, John was standing with two of the disciples in verse 36. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. In verse 19 there, the folks want to know who John is. Verse 20, John knows what they're thinking. They're, they're hoping, maybe, wondering, is he this guy we've been looking for for so many years? And so he just cuts them off the past. Look, I'm not the Messiah. That's not me. Verse 21, they go on to ask him, are you Elijah? And they ask him on uh, the next few verses, are you the prophet? No, no, I'm not. He just kept repeating, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. When you walk in the way of the master, let me just give you a little bit of advice. Make sure you know who you're not. It's real easy in our world being obsessed with ourselves to to think maybe a little more highly of ourselves than we ought. Now, most of us would not claim arrogance. We would claim, well, no, I'm nobody and so on. But when we begin to put ourselves in the shoes, as John could have, of somebody a little higher than us, we begin to claim a position or claim an authority or just begin to think for ourselves maybe a little more than we ought. John here shows us, know who we're not. John says, I'm not. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not this Elijah that you're looking for. I'm not the prophet. I'm not anybody else that you're looking for. John had an opportunity here, just so you know, to really assert himself. He, he could have said, well, you know, I'm not, well, maybe I'm not the Messiah, but I mean, I'm, you know, I'm pretty close. I mean, look at all the stuff I'm doing. You know, I, I'm baptizing people. I mean, I've got a huge following, but John's not swayed by the crowd. John's not swayed by what his own popularity might have dictated or by the pressure to to assert some more authority and so on. He knew who he was in the Lord and he was content with it. He refused to believe that life revolved all around him. And of course, that's not what our world teaches. Children, unfortunately, today grow up in a world that teaches them how great they are. And... You know, I struggle with this as a parent, just so you know, because I love my kids. And I think they're great. I really do, all four of them. I think they're incredible. But if I raise them to think that they're great or to think that I'm great without pointing them ultimately to who really is great, then I've failed miserably as a parent. But I have absolutely dropped the ball. Because they can grow up and have the greatest amount of self-esteem and, oh, I feel so good about myself. And who are they obsessed with? Themselves. They can think, oh, Dad, he's something else. Mom, he's the pastor of that church and <clears throat> he, he knows a lot about the Bible. And well, I listen to him, he stands up on Sunday morning. So they can think that I'm great and, oh, Dad, he's smart and blah, blah, blah. And I hope that some of those things might be true. <laughs> But if that's how they grow up and they never see, as John wanted his followers to see, if they never see Jesus as what's truly great, then i failed. If all they see is themselves as great or as me, as, oh, he's, he's somebody to look up to, then I've failed. Because you see, I can't find anything about self-esteem in the Bible. can't find anything about it. I can't find anything in there where the Bible constantly harps on, hey, b- make sure your kids feel good about themselves. But what I do find is Jesus calling us to a life of self-denial, of no longer obsessing with self but obsessing with Him. And I really, truly believe, as we'll see in John the Baptist here, That once we begin to obsess with Jesus and not ourselves, and our self-esteem doesn't matter because we receive peace and joy and fulfillment like we've never known and like self-esteem can never do for us. John knew who he was not, and he refused to make life about him. John was not about to be a control freak. He was not to be about protecting his interests at all costs. He was not about to be rude or self-serving or do things that would make him look good in the eyes of other people. John was truly humble, and his life is a call for us to be truly humble, not thinking of ourselves as the world teaches, but just thinking of ourselves in terms of how God teaches. This morning, if you're feeling low, if you say, I'm, I'm worthless, I'm useless, a, you know, what's the point of, of, of my existence? Let me just remind you to go back to not what the world might teach you, because you may feel low this morning because you can't keep up with everybody. And you don't have this, and you're not good at that, and by comparison, you're nobody compared to all these other people. John looked at Jesus, and as we see, he he said, by comparison, I'm nothing, but he made me, and he loves me, and he's going to die for me, and he'll be raised again for me. And that's where John got his worth and his validation and all of that. Refuse to compare yourself to other people, and I got a feeling it's going to work out a little better. John says I'm not all those things. What I am, he says, in verses 23 to 27, I'm just a voice. I'm just a messenger. I, you know, I'm just a preview. I'm just kind of the opening act, if you will. I'm just making ready the stage for the the main deal tonight. John said, "I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals." You realize that that disciples didn't do that for their master. Only slaves did that. And John said, I'm not even worthy to be a slave. By comparison to Jesus, I'm nothing. John said, I'm just a tool in God's hands. Just pointing to the one who's about to appear on the scenes. I wonder, for some of us here this morning, maybe maybe it's time for us just to see ourselves as simply tools in God's hands. Lord, I, I don't know what you want to do with my life. But I'm a tool in your hands, and Lord, wherever you want to send me, even if it's to an undesirable kind of experience, Lord, you use me how you want. John saw himself that way, and he just said over and over, I'm not. And he points to Jesus and says, I'm not, but he is. He he's greater than me. He, he he's greater, and John we'll see in, in chapter one, verse twenty nine, he says. He says, the next next day John saw Jesus coming and said, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John knew that Jesus was greater because of who He is. He's the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb, the one who would die for the sins of the world. He was a substitute to die the death that you and I deserve. Jesus alone being perfect, and so He alone can die for our sin, fulfill God's perfect law, do what God wanted, and then give His life on behalf of all the people who couldn't do that. Jesus, John says, is greater because of who He is. Verse 34, He says, I've seen and testified that He is the Son of God. He's not just a man. Be careful and intentional. That you make sure never to reduce Jesus to just a good teacher, a good moral figure, somebody who you can pattern your life after. Jesus never allowed that, nor do the Gospels and the entire New Testament, for that matter, the Old Testament prophecy. They don't allow Jesus to be reduced to just a good guy teaching some neat stuff. If that's your version of Christianity, then with all the sensitivity in my heart, let me just say this morning, you might not know Jesus. You might not know Him. Because unless you see Him as the Son of God, believing in Him as the Son of God, you've just sort of put your faith in some good teacher. Jesus was an excellent teacher and taught us the way to live. But more than that, He's great, not because of the things He taught, but because of who He is, the Son of God, come down from heaven to live among us, to die for us, and to be raised again. Don't buy the lie that he's just a good teacher. John says he's greater because he's the Lamb of God. He's the Son of God. He's greater because of where he's from. Verse 30 says, This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who surpassed me. Why? Because he existed before me. He he came from a different place. He came from heaven. He's not from around here. John was, was something special, but Jesus, he says, surpasses me. He's from somewhere else. He goes on, he talks a lot about in this particular passage about the Spirit of God and says it rested on Jesus, never left Him. Jesus is from God, receives the Spirit of God. And in verse 29, John says He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's, he's great because of who He is, because of where He came from, and then because of what He's able to do. He and He alone is the only one that can cleanse and take away our sin. We see all that testimony from John. He just kind of tells us who Jesus is. He says, look, I'm not these things, but He is, and He's so much greater, and He's the one you need to follow. And then you fast forward to John chapter 3. Turn over there with me. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. After this, Jesus and His disciples went to the Judean countryside where He spent time with them and baptized. John also was baptizing in Aon near Salim because there was plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized since John had not been yet thrown into prison. And then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So there's some kind of controversy here. What's your baptism about? And you know, how does this fit into our purification system and all this stuff? So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about, and who was with you across the Jordan, is baptizing, and everyone is flocking to him. John responded, No one can receive a single thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John said, Look, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not this prophet you're looking for. I'm not any of those things. I'm just a voice pointing to the one who is greater than all of us ever thought about being. I'm not, but he is. Because he's greater, John makes it clear in these verses, I'm just getting out of his way. I'm just moving on. There's no competition. You see these these folks that come to him and they don't even mention Jesus by name. They say, hey, you know, that, that guy that you were with, You know, that fella, you remember him? He's over there, he's baptizing some folks too. His disciples, they've got baptism going on, John, just like you do. What are you going to do about it? And in fact, John, not only are they baptizing some folks, but it's a lot of people. I mean, that church down the street, you ought to see it. They're busting at the seams, John. What are you going to do about it? they got more people than you. He's more popular than you. People, it said, were flocking to him in verse 26. And there's the moment of truth. John, who had built this incredible following, who had done all these great things on behalf of God, who had been sent by God Himself, and he's face to face with what are you going to do when Jesus comes on the scene and obviously Jesus wants to dominate. Jesus... His contingent is baptizing more, people flocking to him, presumably away from John. He's losing people to the church down the street, if you will. And yet in the midst of it, he's just able to forget himself. And there's no hesitation on his part. There's no well. Let me go talk to him and kind of see. Can we? Can he give us some of those folks back? You know, I mean, we, you know, you took seven of our deacons for crying out loud. I mean, can you? Can you? Well, maybe a couple of them you don't want to give back. But can you? Can you? Can you give us some of those back? Can we have some folks? I mean, you're, you're stealing all of our people, Jesus. What's going on? No hesitation. He just says, "Look, I've already told you. That's who you're looking for. I'm not him." John just held very loosely to what he had, to the ministry that God had given him, to the influence God had. He just said, look, I'm a tool in God's hands, and now Jesus is on the scene. And it's a joy, he says, to see Jesus receive what the Father has promised him. John just says, look, nobody can have anything unless God gives it to them. He gave me this ministry, and now it's Jesus' time to come on the scene and do what only he can do. And man, I'm excited. And he draws the analogy to a wedding. He says, only the groom is the one that gets the bride. And I'm just sort of like the best man, if you will. I'm just making the toast and the announcement. Hey, here comes the groom. And isn't it exciting? And he says, look, this is what I've been looking forward to. It's incredibly joyful for me now, he says, to to see Jesus take his rightful place. Joy and freedom came in his self-forgetfulness, not in his self-obsession. Let me give you just a little side note as well. John was an extremely charismatic kind of leader, if you understand what I mean by that. He, he was the kind of guy that could attract a following. He was a little bit quirky, a little weird. He ate locusts and he wore some kind of hairy thing, you know, like a weird toga thing. And so he but he was kind of strange, but he was also that guy that people were attracted to. They, they wanted to be around him. We knew there was something special about him. And yet he points to Jesus and immediately tells all of his followers, you go follow Jesus. Don't follow me. You follow him. Let me encourage us to be very, very careful because some of us may be more susceptible to this than others. Be very, very careful about the charismatic leaders that you follow. You've seen it before. I read about something this week. And especially charismatic leaders of faith. Because if we're not careful then we will allow those leaders or we will elevate those leaders to see themselves not as the friend of the groom, as John describes, but as the groom himself. As the one who we should follow at all costs, no matter what. Whatever they say, let's do that. I had a situation not long ago where I was going to be speaking somewhere, and and there was another person who was maybe going to talk a little bit, and this person said, well, I've got to go talk to my pastor to see if I can have my pastor's blessing to say something at this ceremony. That was weird to me, I'll just be honest with you, that was weird. And I didn't exactly know what to say. Because I thought, I don't know anything about this pastor and whatever. And as the situation unfolded, the person told me, yeah, you know, the pastor kind of, you know, refers to me as, you know, one of his children. And, you know, I kind of refer to him as, you know, as my father. And and I finally, I just got to the point where I said, look, I said, just make sure that you listen to the Holy Spirit and you do what God wants you to do. And if that's a little different from what your pastor wants you to do, then Uh, You know, you got one loyalty here. Be very careful with the kind of leaders that you follow. If they don't immediately point you to Jesus, if they're the kind that want to consolidate power and loyalty and devotion under them, run away. Run away. I've seen it. I've worked for them. Run away. Get out of there as quickly as you can. Make sure that you're following people. Who point you immediately, just as John did, to say, look, don't look at me anymore. You follow Jesus. Let him dominate. Ultimately, John gets to the point in verse 30 of chapter 3 where he just says, he must increase and I must decrease. He's got to grow in status. He's got to grow in respect and in importance and in power and in honor and in position. And I've got to decrease. It's time for me to diminish. John simply saw in Jesus what was greater than anything he could have seen elsewhere, greater than himself, greater than everyone else, greater than the ministry that John had. Jesus, he said, he's greater, greater than the following that John had, greater than the reputation that John had, greater than the future that John may have planned at that point. He just simply saw in Jesus what was greater. And let me encourage you to do the same thing today, to simply see in Jesus what is greater. You say, greater than what? I don't know. Whatever. Greater than your sin. Well, you don't know what I've done, no? But if the the death of Jesus is not sufficient to forgive you of whatever sin you've done, it's not sufficient to forgive you of any sin you've done. See Jesus. See in Jesus what is greater than your sin, what's greater than the darkness that you're in right now. See in Him, as this scripture describes Him, as the light. See in Jesus what's greater than your confusion about life and the world and what's going on. See in Jesus what's greater than even your wisdom and how smart you are to figure it all out. See in Jesus what is greater than what you have to offer the world, your skill set, your personality. See in Jesus what's greater than the supposed answers to all of our problems. See in Jesus what is greater than who you are or who you aren't. See in Jesus what's greater than the people that you're following here on earth. See in Jesus as a church what's greater than our traditions. What's greater than our church building. What's greater than our ministries. Because if we don't see Jesus as greater, then we'll be obsessed with ourselves as individuals and obsessed with what we have and what we've done in the past as a church. So what's greater than Jesus in your life? Something probably is right now. What's greater than him? What's a greater obsession? What's rivaling Jesus in your life? You know what it is. I don't have to, I'm not going to get you up here and we'll line all everybody up and take the microphone. Let's do that. What's rivaling Jesus? What is it for you? You might not have disciples like John had, followers like he had. You know, what? maybe something in your mind and in your life isn't so sure about getting on board with what Jesus wants to do. What's greater than Jesus? What's rivaling Him in your life? Maybe this morning, you'd say a simple prayer, Lord Jesus, no more competition. No more rivalry with you. And you just simply say the words, just as John said, Lord Jesus, you've got to increase, and I've got to decrease. Admit to the Lord this morning, if you find yourself in the middle of it, that you're obsessed with yourself. And there are a lot of things in competition and rivalry with Jesus, and you just say, no, no, no more. January 3rd, 2016, as we begin a new year, I want an undivided heart in devotion to Jesus Christ. No more competition. No more self-obsession. What I want is self-forgetfulness so that I can have my joy made complete just like John when Jesus takes his rightful place in my life. I wonder what prayer you would pray this morning. Let's pray together.